would have a rack of fat for myself. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And what Pyta did not tell you is we have control of someone who is very close, very close to Duke Leo. This person, this traitor, will be worth more to us than ten legions of Sardaukar. And who is this? I won't tell you who the traitor is or when we'll attack. However, the Duke will die before these eyes and he'll know, he'll know that it is I, then Vladimir Harkonnen, who encompasses his doom. <laughs> Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast that takes a second look at the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time worm rider, Andrew Phillips. Yeehaw. (laughs) And today we're forcing the waters of life on David Lynch's Dune. Will it be reborn into a second chance at life or become nothing more than worm food? All that and more to come, but first, cue the trailer. No. The most widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece of a generation comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune. I see two great houses feuding. A world where the unexpected. Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown. And the unbelievable meet. Where kingdoms are built on earth that moves. And skies are filled with fire. Where warriors fight with a thought. And kill with a word. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty. The mad. All I can see is an Atreides that I want to kill. And the magical. The sleeper has awakened! Will have their final battle. A world called Dune. Long live the fighters! We will kill until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. George R. R. Martin's Dune takes us to the year 10,191, to a universe ruled by Padisha Emperor Shaddam Carino IV, who is ordered by the space-folding spacing guild to assassinate Paul Atreides, the heir to the throne of House Atreides, with the help of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Their aim, to rule the desert planet Dune, obtain a spice melange, and test the patience of audiences worldwide. So Andy, I assume you are well aware of Alan Smithy's Dune. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm very much aware of it, but it's a film that I have not seen all the way through until this week. So I've been aware of Dune Law for a long time now, but never plucked the courage to watch the whole film all the way through. Yeah, we spoke about Dune a lot together, Mm. but as you said, it's one of those films that not many people have actually seen. Yeah, or even dare to see. I think (laughs) getting past the first 10 minutes is uh, an effort. Oh, it really is. It, it's just pure exposition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I too have got to say I'm very much aware of Dune. I've seen it. This is the second time I've seen the film. Mm. But I wouldn't exactly call it a forgotten film. 
No, it's a famously forgotten film. Yeah, famously forgotten film, because although it did fail to find the kind of general audience that it wanted to, I mean, this is the type of film that aimed to find the same audience that saw Star Wars, but instead found the same audience that saw something like Pluto Nash. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) It's a lesser-known cult film. Yeah. It's talked about a lot. I think it's because it's one of those great missed opportunities in sci-fi lore. Yeah, it's talked about a lot, but rarely viewed. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I think more people still read the book than they actually would watch the film. The book's still got a, a massive following, and it's had many sequels written by Frank Herbert and then also by his son and with another guy as well. So in literary form, Dune is still a very big property, but in film form, it's always had a rocky ride. Yeah, I mean, this isn't actually the first attempt to make a film of Dune. You've actually been doing some research about the background of this film and all the other attempts. So I'm going to hand it over to you to just uh, flesh it out for us. There's a great documentary that came out about two years ago about Alejandro Jodorowsky's 1970s version of Dune that never got made. It's one of these legendary lost productions that many people worked on and has influenced many other films since, but due to its ambitions, never got off the ground. And this documentary goes into all the ins and outs of how the film got developed and then also why it ultimately failed to ignite any interest in the studios. And so that's the first attempt. We'll go into the second attempt in a minute, but the first attempt is the most interesting one. Yeah, it's the one that everybody regards as being what would have been the definitive version of Frank Herbert's novel. Yeah, we have Alejandro Jodorowsky, who's a Chilean director he was a an avant-garde film director and he made a lot of films in mexico his most notable films are el topo yes and holy mountain which is the film that preceded the development of gene which both are very weird yes i've seen el topo it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very strange and um he was in paris one time and he got in touch with a producer called michael sado and he wanted to produce anything that jodorowsky wanted so immediately jodorowsky went dune I don't know whether he'd even read the book at the time, but he just wanted to do Dune because he'd heard so much about it. He wanted it to be a sprawling space epic. And with the help of Gerard Mobius, the famous French cartoonist and artist, they developed over 3,000 drawings that would encompass the screenplay and would provide a visual record of the film. And there's two books of this that still exist. So it's one of those films that still could technically be made Now, I'd imagine actually it would be a film that would be better if Jodorowsky didn't direct it. You'd probably know what I'm talking about when you saw the documentary, when you see how wild and crazy Jodorowsky actually is talking about it. Yeah, it's one of those films where I can totally see why it didn't get made, even though it came so close. It's actually a wonder that it came so close to being made with him at the helm, because he is so crazy. Yeah, his idea was to assemble what he called warriors to join him in this battle of making the film and he did try and get certain more conventional people on board for example for the visual effects he was very interested in getting douglas trumbull involved in the visual effects side of the film but who many will know from 2001 and silent running but he found him to be a technical but not a spiritual person (laughs) so he didn't hire him because he didn't feel right for him alternately he saw dark star and hired Dan O'Bannon. So he had the attitude of art before, technical later. Right. So, yeah, he's not the most practical of fellows. I imagine the film would have looked very rough around the edges then. Yeah, I think so. Like, first in word imagination, but not quite the know-how to pull it off. It's one of those films where when you look at the kind of things that they were wanted to do, you could do it now, 
for a lot of money still, but you could do it now and it would look great. But at the time, no way they could do that. No way. And he was assembling this great team of artists. He was getting Mobius. He was getting Chris Foss to design all the spaceships. Uh, he was getting H.R. Giger to design all the Harkonnen landscape. Yeah, I've actually seen some of H.R. Giger's work. And Ridley Scott actually repurposed some of his work on Dune in Prometheus. Yeah, actually, when Ridley Scott was doing his version of Dune, he was the only artist that he brought over. So he still would have been involved in that film. And also, Jodorowsky was assembling musicians he assembled pink floyd they were going to do the music for leto so they were basically going to do the music for uh, caladan and he hired another band called magma i think they were going to do all the harkonnen music so the idea was that there was going to be a different rock band doing the music for each planet oh so all these different cultures would have these incredibly different sounds yeah he wanted to make sure that each culture was distinct so each culture would be designed by a different artist and would have a different soundtrack i do wonder what that would have sounded like once these cultures started to mingle together yeah i think it's a great idea on paper but i'm not sure how it would work in practicality but no but i'm very interested mm. i'd be very very interested to see if it actually pulled off i mean that's jodorowsky's gene in a nutshell it's very interesting yes yeah <laughs> he was also assembling a very large cast of characters. He was going to have David Carradine as Duke Leto. He was going to have his son Brontus as Paul. And then he was intending for Orson Welles to be the Baron Harkonnen. Oh, wow. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. And he definitely uh, wouldn't have needed much makeup at the time. <laughs> That's the reason why he chose him, because it was so big. <laughs> he looked at him and went, yeah, this is the guy. Because when you read the description in the novel, it's like, that's Orson Welles. So oh. I may as well get Orson Welles to do it. And for the role of Emperor Shaddam, he was intending to get Salvador Dali, who was interested, but his demands, I think he wanted to be paid like a million dollars a day or a minute or something stupid like that. How reasonable. Yeah. So the idea was that they were going to get a cast of his face and the Emperor would have a puppet robot that did all his commands and the Emperor was so scared of being taken out that he wouldn't be in public. It would be a avatar of him. I like that idea. <laughs> yeah. It's another idea that's actually been repurposed by Ridley Scott mm. in Blade Runner, although once more they never actually pulled it off. And finally they were going to get Mick Jagger to play Fade Rother, who ultimately gets played by Sting in the Yeah, what Dune is it version. with rock stars in this role? No idea. <laughs> But there's some great visual stuff that I saw, some really good stuff involving the worms on the planet, how the planet would look, how the Harkonnen stuff would look, all the costumes, which for me, I would have actually preferred them to look like that than the David Lynch version. But there's just so many ideas, and the thing is, uh, he does take a lot of liberties with the novel, but this is a testament to how crazy Jodorowsky is and how crazily enthusiastic he is about the source material. He described his adaptation of Dune as him raping Frank Herbert. But oh, with, wow. But with love. <laughs> and this is what he says. He only says it quite scarily as well. I'm raping Frank Herbert. I'm raping him. But with love. I wonder if that would hold up in court. I know. Uh, I wonder how Frank Herbert feels about this. I don't know. I think Frank Herbert was... Um, he was kind of going along with it at the time, I think. Yeah. To cut a long story short, they'd been working on it for about a year or so. They took all these ideas to LA, presented them to all the different studios, and everybody said no. They wanted an hour and a half film. Jodorowsky wanted it to be at least 12 hours long. And they were like, what? You're crazy. 
Well, just... actually, I would I would agree with them. I think twelve hours is exactly what this film needs. Yeah, because it's a miniseries. Yeah, it is. It's a <laughs> HBO series. Yeah, but they said no. They wanted an hour and a half movie, which is probably an even crazier notion. Yeah, they wanted Star Wars. So this all collapsed. Dina De Laurentiis bought the rights. Most of the artistic team from June ended up working on Alien. So you've got Dan O'Bannon. He brings on board Chris Foss and H.R. Giga to work on all of the things for Alien. And Alien is a film that is also in part inspired by the artwork of Morbius. Yes. So it's all connected with each other. And then off the back of the success of Alien, De Laurentiis hires Ridley Scott to develop a new film version of Dune. Scott envisioned his version of the film as being two films. Yes. Which I thought was a sensible idea. It's sensible. They'd gotten a version of the script out that he thought was a decent adaptation of the novel. But then unfortunately his older brother Frank died and I think Ridley Scott just got cold feet because it would have taken at least two and a half years to bring this version of Gene to the screen and I think he just wanted to work on something that was less time consuming and a bit smaller so he drops out of doing Dune and jumps on to doing Blade Runner it's also more thematically involved with the way he was thinking at yeah, the time yeah about- it reflects his mood whereas this is a big sprawling space opera that's quite impersonal at times so I don't think that it would have been the right subject matter for him to tackle at that very moment no you can see why you fell out of love with it and so this brings us forward to probably 81 82 when De Laurentiis hires David Lynch off the back of the Elephant Man. And this is where more troubles begin, as this is now the third attempt to create this film. And David Lynch had no easy ride on this film. In fact, I think we've got to say straight from the off that he didn't have final cut. So the version of Dune that we are watching is not the version David Lynch wanted us to see. Yeah, this is not David Lynch's Dune. This is Dina De Laurentiis's Dune, directed by David Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> And unfortunately, this is almost the same situation as David Fincher talking about Alien 3. David Lynch does not want to talk about Dune at all. David Lynch might not have liked this film, but I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, I didn't like that version of the film. I love what they made. Yes, I love elements of Dune, but Mm. I just don't love Dune. I think there's a far better film in there somewhere. And I guess we're going to get into what works and what doesn't work in Dune. But first, I've got to tell the audience that this isn't going to be one of those episodes where we deconstruct a story beat for beat. No. It's just far too dense. There are far too many characters and a hell of a lot of... It's so dense. It's so dense. (laughs) And there's a hell of a lot of exposition to get through. So instead, we're going to keep story details vague, or at least we're going to try to. Whether or not we succeed is another thing entirely. Yeah. Okay, so where to start? Actually, I think it's best if we just leave it to Virginia Madsen's talking head to tell us what Dune is really about. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The Spacing Guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas 
which gives them the ability to fold space. That is, travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. Okay, did you understand any of that? Just to let everybody know who hasn't seen the film, that is the first thing you see in the film. It is Virginia Madsen's talking head in some stars spouting out that dialogue, and then we get the opening titles. And it's a clear reshoot as well. Yeah, this is part of the reshoots. This is a film that has been ripped to shreds. Yeah, the things that I do love about the film are really lost in the edit. And this is another case of it. We're getting this entire chunk of exposition straight from the off when it should have been seeded throughout the film in a far more intelligent way, in a way that I imagine David Lynch would have. I feel that the way that they should have done this film, and Ridley Scott himself uses it when he was describing his version of Dune, the way this film should have played out would have been similar to Star Wars, wherever that's another film that is doing a lot of world building within the first film, yeah. but does it gradually. You find out things the further you go into the story. Whereas this, it just tries to offload everything within the first 10 minutes. Yeah, and it's really presented in a dumb way. It's so flat. It's dry. lifeless. It's very it's dry. dry. Yeah. But even in the way that it's presented, it's lacking any kind of creativity. It's all meant to be one long take. And yet you've got this image of Virginia Madsen's head fading in and out. And that's just there to mask the takes. There's just no thought that has been really put into presenting this information. It's so dull and lifeless. Yeah, it feels very amateurish. And I think this is not a Lynch thing. I think this is a Raffaella De Laurentiis thing. And just in case you are watching this for some Virginia Madsen action, that's about the most that you're going to see of her throughout the film. She is a real casualty of the re-edit. Unless she'd done any of this narration stuff in the re-edit, her role in the film would just be relegated to a walk-on extra part. Yes, she barely has a line at all. No, and she's just at the end in the climax looking on. And her narration is so sporadic throughout anyway. Actually, there is no rhyme or reason to when her narration comes into play with the story. We get this strange mix of Virginia Madsen's narration combined with the inner monologue thoughts of every single character in the film. Now, we have a slight disagreement about these inner monologues that are taking place throughout the film because I actually don't mind them that much, but I do agree that they are irrelevant most of the time. Again, they come off as being fairly amateurish for the most part. There are a couple that do work, and they should have just left those ones in and kept everything else out. Yeah. But it just comes off as amateurish, as if the people making the film and the screenwriter really can't get a grasp of adapting this hefty novel with all its rituals, backgrounds, and world building. They can't quite get a grasp of it, and they try and shove it in into all these inner monologues, and it just comes off as someone who can't adapt a book very well. The thing I like about it is the concepts, not so much the execution. It reminded me of The Thin Red Line, Mm. and at times, like The Thin Red Line, it lent the image a poetic kind of quality. 
but that is when it's not just dealing with exposition because a yeah. lot of the time it's there to simply state what a character is feeling when the performance should be doing that. Yeah, that's where I feel it comes off as lazy yes. rather than being anything poetic. But there's a kernel of an idea in the concept, you have to agree. Yeah, I just thought it was used too much and mishandled. Definitely. And then immediately after the credits, we get the other barrage of exposition. So the first 10 minutes of this film is pure exposition. Yeah, and I actually think that David Lynch's Dune starts just after the credits. Yeah. And you get this image of the planets being introduced. It's yet more preamble before the story can begin. Mm. But that's all it needed. Just the planets being defined, introduced, named, jump into the story. And even then, I think that there's probably ways of doing that better without going, this is this, this is this, this is this, this is this, because it literally says planet Arrakis... Which source is already of the spice. Yeah, which has already been introduced as being the source of the spice. Yeah. It's just repeating itself. I don't feel they needed to tell people this information at this point before knowing anything else. You could have joined Shaddam on his planet, then gone to Arrakis, then gone to Harkonnen, and let it all flow naturally, all be revealed as you go to those different worlds. Or even so, it could have been introduced within the scene. Yeah. Maybe it's a readout that somebody else is looking at. As is, it's just simply there. It's like looking at a computer screen from somebody else that's completely unrelated to the scene that's taken place. Yeah, it's like looking at somebody's slideshow of the film. Yeah, exactly. And this I'll- is where the source of the spice is in Arrakis, and as we move to slide 42B, <laughs> we go to Caladan, which is the home of House Atreides. It's like that. <laughs> yeah, it's like some kind of business. Yeah. Like, it, it, Again, it's still quite dry. Yeah, for me. I prefer it as a starting point, though. I definitely prefer it as a starting point, though. It's definitely better than Virginia Madsen's head just reeling through as much exposition as it can within four minutes. It's better, but it's not creative or entertaining. No. Enough. Imagine if these planets would have been introduced in the same way that the solar system is introduced to Prometheus. Like Maybe it's something that's actually somebody's got on the set, some kind of computer thing that's going through the planets. Yeah, well, this is Jodorowsky's original opening of his version of the film his version plays out like contact where you're zooming through the universe you're going past all these planets and then you focus in on arrakis and then it keeps going down it's all done in one shot keeps going down into arrakis you see all the people mining the spices you go through the worms you get real down into the nitty-gritty of it all and then it literally comes into seeing the spice and that's where it goes right in right from the edge of the universe to the spice and which oh, is the source of everything i like that idea because there's one of the criticisms i have with the film is i never get a sense of what they're mining and where they're mining and where the spice is actually found yeah and what it actually is it's presentation we only mm-hmm. got one shot of it in the film and it just looks like a red twiglet that's like a bit of candy it does there's nothing special to it there's nothing magical to it it's just a bit of candy yeah So we get these um, planets, which we all go about in a similarly dry fashion. So we've got Arrakis, which is Dune, and that is the source of the spice and the home of the Fremen. We have Caladan, which is the home of House Atreides, the planet of Paul Atreides, who's our main character. Yes. Giddy Prime, which is the home of House Harkonnen, who are the bad guys. And then we have Kaitain, which is the home of Emperor Shaddam IV who is played by Jose Ferrer, who's Miguel Ferrer's dad. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is why he's in a lot of David Lynch stuff afterwards. Ah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that we do have to provide the audience with a little bit of what 
the film is about and what takes place just before we get into what we like and what we don't like. So, Andy, you've actually wrote up what this film is about and saved me the trouble of trying to make sense of it. Yeah, so this is going to be a very much simplified version because... This is not a simple story. This is a quite complex story, especially yes. when you're talking about people's names and what they do and their role in the society. But So this is essentially Dune for Dummies. Yeah, as best I can, I'm just going to run through all the major story points. Okay, so fasten your seatbelts. You are in for a crash course in Dune. So, the Spacing Guild, who are in charge of folding the space, they sent a plot to jeopardise the production of the spice on Arrakis. And... They go into the Emperor, and meanwhile, he's instigated a plot to get the House Atreides and the House Harkonnens feuding together, and his general plan is to destroy House Atreides by sending them as ambassadors slash controllers of the spice production, and then he's going to ambush them with the House Harkonnens and basically get rid of them, because the Duke Leto, who's Paul's father, has become too favourable and too powerful for him to handle, and the Space Guild agree but they don't want to get involved too much so we cut to caladan which is home of house atreides and we see paul who's in training and he's ready to be shipped off to arrakis and paul is the product of a breeding program by the religious cult the Beni gesserit who they want to produce a super being called the quazak hadarak and he's meant to restore balance to the force Sorry, that's Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> but it's a similar idea. Yeah. And Paul already suspects the Emperor at this point. I don't know how, but it's something to do with the special powers. And they know it's a trap, but they're going to do it anyway. And we get into Duke Leto, who's a very sad figure. He kind of always knows he's going to die already. He's actually one of the stronger characters in yeah. the film. Meanwhile, on the planet Giddy Prime... We meet the Harkonnens who are all disgusting and they have all these servants with these heart plugs. They have an inside man in the House of Atreides who is Dr. Huey, which is one of Paul's aides. And he is a traitor because they have his wife or they've killed his wife. But he has plans of his own. Mm. We get to the point where the House of Atreides land on Arrakis, which is June. They have these new weapons, which are the wielding weapons, which are all sonic devices that can manipulate a lot of different things and that's part of the reason why the spacing guild are afraid of the house of trades mm -hmm. and we get introduced to all the concepts of dune how these suits work how the fremen survive on the planet it's essentially a process that repurposes their own bodily fluids including all their feces which is wonderful <laughs> yummy mm -hmm. we see how the spice mining works uh, how they have to combat against the worms who are attracted to all the vibrations and that the Fremen are very mysterious and they live underground and they're not quite sure how many numbers they have. And so at this point, everything goes to pot. Paul almost gets killed. The city's on lockdown. The Harkonnens are on their way. Leto is stabbed by Dr. Huey and he's brought down the shield to let the Harkonnens in. But Huey has different notions. He wants Leto, who's already going to die, he wants him to kill the Baron using poison gas lit in inside a fake tooth. And there's a big battle scene where the Harkonnens take over. And if this sounds like the end of Act 1, it's actually 90 minutes into the film. Yeah. Quite a few of the Treadies guys get killed. Paul and Jessica, who's his mother, they get taken to the desert. They manage to take control of the craft and crash in the desert. Where they're left stranded to fend for themselves against yeah. the giant worms beneath Arrakis. The Duke kills one of the Baron's associates, but the Baron himself survives still. Paul starts to realise his true purpose... 
And he also realises that Jessica is pregnant with a daughter. And he promises Leto that he will avenge him. And this is where the film gets really rushed. They come across the Fremen, who's led by Everett McGill. Who plays a character called Stilgar. Yeah, and we also meet Sean Young as Chani, and they fall in love immediately for no reason. Yeah, between scenes. Yeah, between scenes. Everything's between scenes from this point on now. And through being associated with the Fremen, they immediately recognise Paul as being the Muad'Dib, who's the mythical messiah figure in their religion. They start to ally with him, and through doing so, they discover that there's lots of water underground in Arrakis, and they've been secretly stockpiling all this water, and their plan is to change the face of Arrakis eventually with the help of the Muad'Dib. And also, Jessica's daughter is born prematurely into becoming a new reverend mother, and she has a vastly accelerated growth span. Yes, it seems like she grows to be a six-year-old child within the space of about a couple of days. Yeah, she grows to be a creepy young girl with an old woman's voice. Yes, it's very Reagan from The Exorcist with less of the violent masturbation. Paul and Charney, who's not from Anchorman 2, (laughs) they get closer and closer together. Paul rallies his warriors. He teaches them how to use the wielding weapons. They plan to halt spice production so that all eyes will fall on Arrakis. Also, they manage to conquer the worms. They manage to find a way of riding the worms so they have control over these seemingly uncontrollable forces within the landscape. And I've got to say that riding the worm is definitely not a euphemism. No. They are literally riding riding giant worms. So, And at this point, two years has passed and... At the end of this two years, they've completely stopped spice production and the Harkonnens who have taken over are a complete disarray. So this gets back to the Emperor and the Space Guild has given him one last chance to settle matters because the Space Guild are afraid that he's going to take the Water of Life. Yes. Which will give him many answers to many things. So the worms are the key to this whole planet, basically. And it's treated like it's a really big twist, but actually I think they could have guessed it with the information that was already out there. So there's now a big battle. So the Emperor comes to join the Monarchus, the Harkonnens are there, and they rally with a bunch of the outcast Atreides group, led by Patrick Stewart. The Harkonnen leader in charge of spice production has been beheaded at the Emperor's request. And then this daughter, she goes to the makeshift phone room and starts messing with everybody psychologically, whilst everybody else is outside battling. The Baron gets sucked out of the spaceship and eaten by a worm. And there's a standoff between Paul and the Emperor. There's a final showdown between Paul and Fade Ruther, who's one of their... Isn't he the nephew of... Yeah, he's the nephew and he's one of the top warriors as well. Yeah, Paul defeats Fade. And Paul declares himself to the world or to the universe as the Moadib, the hand of God. And then he makes it rain. The last thing you see in the film is that the daughter, Alia, who's the weird creepy old woman girl... She goes, he is the quasi-Hadarak. And then we get cheesy credits. What is the quasi-Hadarak again? Basically, she's just saying, he is the Messiah. Oh, right. No, he's not. He's a very naughty boy. (laughs) So that is the story in a nutshell. Very much simplified, but that is the whole film. Yes. I feel like I've watched it again. Okay, so that's been Best Forgotten Movies. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next time. Okay, so where's I actually start with this? I think I've just got to ask straight off the bat, what did you like about June? I love the bits of the film that David Lynch did. <laughs> yeah, the bits that ring through as pure David Lynch yeah. are when the film is at its best. Yeah, I love the design for the most part. 
there are a couple of things from the Jodorowsky version that I probably preferred in terms of the costumes. I thought some of the costumes looked a bit too militaristic and conventional. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen the Jodorowsky documentary, but just by watching this film, I thought that the costumes looked actually quite grounded, whereas the world around them was really overblown in sci-fi camp. It was a little jarring, but I actually like that at least there is something to ground ourselves into this world. I think that the sets are more imaginative than the costume design. And there are elements of Jodorowsky's Dune in here, because there are parts of the film that actually remind me of H.R. Giger's work, especially to do with the Spacing Guild. Yeah, I mean, I think the Spacing Guild and the Harkonnens probably had the best designed costumes. Yeah, the Harkonnens themselves are very gross to look at as well. They've all got this horrible ginger-headed thing going yeah. on. And the leader of them, Vladimir Harkonnen, mm. is a horrible sight to behold. <laughs> and he spends his time literally flying from scene to scene, like somebody let the air out of the grossest balloon you've ever seen. And I think this is a lynch addition, is all his boils, all his diseases that are being treated throughout the whole film. So he has many growths and pus-filled boils on all over his body. Yeah, he's really gross. Gross yeah. is the word that describes it. It's just yeah. disgusting to look at. And when he's first introduced, we see a doctor actually scraping out his boils. And the whole notion of the Harkonnens is just unpleasant. The whole world looks yeah. horrible. It does look like a bit of a H.R. Giga nightmare vision. All the servants, they have their eyes and their ears sewn up. It looks really disgusting. And you have all these servants with their heart plugs. It's very bizarre and yeah. very unsettling. The entire landscape is made to look wrong. Mm. It's made from colours that aren't meant to go together. Even the walls are painted this horrible shade of green, like this pukey green. It's a great design. I love it. So I liked all that. I liked most of the special effects. There's a couple that don't work so well. Yes. But I loved the worms. Yeah, some great creature design from Carlo Rambaldi. Yeah. Who many will know as the guy that created E.T. I liked the navigator in the tube at the start. Yes. I don't think they worked so well when they were navigating. No. There's some dodgy opticals there. It looks kind of funny. And unfortunately, they look like vagina faces. See, I thought they were going for the whole shredded anus look, actually. Yeah, they're it's... kind of interchangeable, aren't yes, they? Yes, definitely. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm very much the same. There are elements that I love about Dune, but I just don't love Dune. I think the main problems of the film are attributed to how the story's told and how the film has been edited. For at least one of those things, David Lynch is not responsible for it. No, and I actually think that if David Lynch would have had creative control over the final cut, we would be having an entirely different conversation right now. I don't think we would be talking about Dune in the way that we are now, it wouldn't be a forgotten film. It would be a film that would be proudly on anybody's shelves. Historically speaking, when this film was finished, and it was a $40 million film created in Cherubusco Studios in Mexico, with 80 sets on 16 sound stages. Fucking hell. So this production was huge. Yeah, It was one of gigantic. the most expensive films made at that time. The original cut came in at four hours, but David Lynch's intended cut, which reflected his final draft of screenplay came in just under three hours long but de laurentis wanted it two hours no he wanted star wars and for all those people that are listening that have seen other cuts of the film i haven't actually so i can only go off what's in this version i don't actually know what's in the other cuts they may be far better films but all i have is what they release theatrically mm. and there's actually just been a new three-hour edit of the film that's supposedly closer to David Lynch's original version. 
It's out on the internet at the moment. We will include a link on our Facebook and Twitter pages for anybody that's curious enough to take a look, and perhaps we will do in the future as well. They wanted a two-hour film, and so just had huge chunks taken out of it, and then they had to reshoot scenes and tweak things to simplify or gloss over certain elements to get from one bit to another. And especially in the second half of the film, it really shows. Yeah, it really becomes apparent for me in the second half of the film because for the first 90 minutes, it is entirely set up. You're Mm. feeling the film build up towards something. And even at the 80-minute to 90-minute mark, you are still having main characters being introduced. Ordinarily, that wouldn't be a problem as I really like these grand type of epics that spend their time building worlds. But with that amount of setup, there needs to be a similar type of payoff. And the film seems to have been completely knocked out of shape in the editing bay. In fact, from the 90-minute mark on, there's only 40 minutes of the film left, and it just feels so rushed through that we're missing about an hour's worth of footage here. Yeah. There are entire characters who are simply defined off-screen, and their relationships develop in this weird space between scenes. We're going to have a montage. (laughs) Even June had a montage. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, you said earlier that it's two years that passes in the second half of the film. I had no idea about that. I thought it was just a couple of months. From the moment they come across the Fremen, the fact that they get established, Paul becomes the Modib, he falls in love with Chani, he trains all the warriors, and they start to disrupt spice production. That all happens within the space of four or five minutes. Yes, it does. He quickly rises to power within their ranks, yeah. and all of it happens off screen. Yeah, and I imagine that's a good 20 minutes of film that have been lost. Definitely. There. I'd imagine most of Sean Young's scenes are on the cutting room floor. See, that's it. For the character Paul Atreides, and his entire journey actually starts to move somewhere at the 90-minute mark, when essentially you get the feeling that the first act is over with. And Mm. this is where his arc is supposed to really take shape and his character is really supposed to come into his own. But again, it's another thing that just happens in the blank spaces between scenes. We get characters throughout the whole film who are just not served by the material that's been given or the edit that's been given. You get big actors in roles that do nothing or go nowhere. Yeah, and the cast is an embarrassment of riches as well. I mean, just to give the audience an idea of who is in this film, we have David Lynch regulars like Kyle MacLachlan, Dean Stockwell, Everett McGill, and Brad Dourif, as well as other actors such as Max von Sydow, Virginia Madsen, Jürgen Prochnow, Sean Young, Patrick Stewart, and uh, the aforementioned Sting. As well as many other distinguished British actors. But the thing is, very few of these actors are actually used to their full potential, and many of them are just left to the cotton room floor yeah you've got the late richard jordan as duncan idaho he goes on ahead to arrakis and then he states the situation and then gets killed literally two minutes later with a very ineffectual shield yeah he gets a knife through the head (laughs) that shield is set up in one of the first scenes with paul atreides and although it does look quite funky for the time i don't understand the shield's purpose because every time it's used (laughs) It's shown to be completely and utterly useless. Yeah. Why would you cast that kind of guy in a role that only amounts to about two minutes screen time? Even Max von Sydow isn't given much to do. No. And doesn't get a proper payoff or even a death scene. His character is just left to the wastelands in a character beat that's actually repeated in Judge Dredd. 
And actually, it works far better in Judge it Dredd. Does. <laughs> Even though it's probably a worse film than this. It's definitely yeah. a worse film. But his character actually gets a better payoff. He gets a better denouncement in Judge Dredd than he does here. <laughs> his death happens off screen and we are led to believe he's died. We don't actually get to see it. And there's actually a relationship he has with another character who is very ill-defined in this film, which is Sean Young's member of the Fremen. Charney, her character really suffers in this version of the film. Yeah, and it's funny as well because when the film came out, she was billed as being the main love interest, yet she doesn't appear until an hour and a half in. And even from that point, doesn't feature in that many scenes. They immediately lock eyes in each other, fall in love. We get their relationship developing via a montage, and then all of a sudden they're lovers, and that's all that's made of it. Yeah, and we have no idea why these two people have fallen in love either. In the novel, she is assigned to be Paul's protector. So whilst being assigned to that role, they gradually fall in love. But in this version of the film, they fall in love immediately, which makes no sense. The only reason that he falls in love with her is because we've had some strange dream sequences prior to that where she's been in them. And that's meant to be the reason as to why he falls in love with her. But actually, she's related to Max von Sydow's character and that's never drawn upon in the film whatsoever. In the novels she's his daughter and we don't get any inkling of that at all in the film. I'm very curious to find out if that is drawn upon in any significant way in the extended cuts of the film. I get the strangest feeling that all of these beats have been accounted for in David Lynch's original screenplay and all the scenes that they've shot and given that the film was originally four hours long and he pruned it down to three I'd imagine that there is but it's just been pruned down further. It's that whole um, yeah. it's that whole Heaven's Gate situation again. Yeah, it is. And we've actually seen this happen very recently with a big-budget film in Fantastic Four. In that studio, has hired a director with a particular vision. They've signed on to that vision, and then halfway through, the production process have gotten cold feet entirely. And that's happened with Dune. Mm. They've hired David Lynch to make a David Lynch version of Dune and yet try to fashion that footage into Star Wars in the Edison Bay. Yeah. And it doesn't work whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's just this thing that happens time and time again where you get the money guys buying a property that they don't fully understand, hiring someone with a singular vision who does understand it, but then bulking at that vision when it comes out. So they ended up having to hastily change it, but they still don't know what it's about, so it ends up being a complete mess. Yeah, yeah, and that's clearly happened here. And I think probably even more so with the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think Fantastic Four has probably had a more tumultuous production history than even June has. And that's saying something. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that strikes me straight off the bat, and I know we've mentioned it earlier, but I just want to draw upon it further. June doesn't seem to me to be the type of property that lends itself well to the film treatment. This is something that should be expanded on a HBO-type Game of Thrones show. It's very revealing to think that when Ridley Scott was in charge of making the film, he originally intended it to be two films. I'd imagine it would have broken in two where Duke Leto is killed, Paul and Lady Jessica crash into the desert, and then they come across the Fremen, and I'd imagine that's where they would break. You could have made two different but connected films with those two elements, because it does feel like there's a halfway point where the film suddenly changes. The first film is kind of the, the fall of House Atreides, and then the second film is the emergence of Paul as the Moadib. Yes, yeah, the rise the of the liberation Moadib, of Arrakis. Yeah. That's what you would do. And within the first film, you would do all the world building. That seems like the smarter thing to do. Yeah. Even if you didn't have the 12 hours that is afforded to you by a HBO show-type format. 
to split the film into two is the smart thing to do. And Ridley Scott was definitely on the right track with that, in my opinion. If yeah. you had to make a film out of Dune, that's the way to do it. Don't just try and force everything that you have into a two-hour runtime. Even a three-hour runtime, I think, may have been cut on it. It's only more apparent when they made Dune into a TV miniseries in the early 2000s. It's all sci-fi channel stuff. Yes. I'm yeah, not sure what the production values are like. But... It's sci-fi channel when sci-fi channel meant something. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's sci-fi with a Y, and they're too busy making films like Giant Piranha vs. Massive Beaver. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Prehistoric Otter vs. <laughs> versus... <laughs> Giant Penguin. <laughs> that we should make that. Yeah. Prehistoric Trade. Otter versus Giant Penguin. <laughs> I'm trademarking it now. <laughs> The giant penguin looks like Pingu. <laughs> and he's going, mean, stop motion. This is, we should just rotoscope some stop footage of Pingu. Straight in. Straight in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, back to June. Yeah. <laughs> Even now that we're in the golden age of television, this would be... A property that would be ripe for creating a new series out of you could literally make a series out of each one of these books and there's quite a lot of these books as well yeah and you give the story and the characters time to breathe that way yeah which is why you refer to it as george rr R. martin's yeah george rr R. martin's June June. at the start <laughs> it's obvious that's what needs to happen they're still trying to make a film version of june even as recent as 2009 when peter berg was on board mm. and i'm not quite sure i want to see peter berg's june considering battleships and that's from somebody who liked peter berg as a director no i think you need intelligent filmmakers to make this kind of film yes i think hiring peterberg tells you the type of film that they were going to make with him on board which yeah. was something that was high in action and low in intelligence mm. i think june needs more respect than that it needs it does need the breathing space that television allows for especially the production values that television has these days yeah it no longer looks like the little brother to cinema it's very much standing on its own platform now there was a time when everything looked cheap on TV that had anything to do with special effects. And looking back at Children of Dune, that is part of that whole generation of television production. Yeah. Nowadays, it will not be tied down with those limitations. And that's why I think Dune could work, because it's not just limited by a short supply of creativity and ambition. There's a lot of directors now, like you say, there's a lot of film directors now that are finding their voice in television and that's why june could really take flight i think it's still popular enough as a literary series to be valid but also just the whole central idea of different powerhouses rallying for this source is so relevant these days in terms of people battling over oil and things like that it's probably more relevant now than it was even when it was written but that's the thing about these type of stories they are timeless yeah. in the way that they deal with human nature because Although these characters are very elaborate, well, essentially aliens, Dune itself deals with very human characters. And they are flawed in the same way that humans are now, and humans will always be. So as a story, it will always be relevant, because mm. there will always be greed. 
Okay, and on that happy note, yeah, <laughs> let's start talking about some other things that we like about June. I've got to say, I think the soundtrack is one of the things that I really like about this film. And uh, from a very unlikely source. Yeah, Toto. I genuinely thought when I saw their name come up that this was going to be another one of those crappy, anachronistic, synthy type scores. Yeah. Which is weird to say about fancy films, but I always find that they are quite anachronistic when they yeah. don't have a very classical kind of traditional feeling to them. Yeah. Or it could have been like the Flash Gordon score. Yes, yeah, the exactly. Queen Flash Gordon score. Um, my worry was it was going to be like the Princess Bride, which is a score that I really don't like, and the Tangerine Dream version of Legend. But actually, I really like the score. For the most part, I mean, it, there's a couple of cues here and there that allude to the traditional Toto sound, like especially the end credits. The end credits, yes, definitely. On the whole, yeah, they've really risen to the challenge and delivered something worthy of the visuals on screen. Yeah, I must say, that end credit sequence is very Garth Morangi. Yeah, it's an odd thing. It jars with the rest of yeah. the film. Given the style of the credits at the end of Blue Velvet, which is the film that he followed, this is definitely not a David Lynch thing. No, no. <laughs> it's called Take My Hand. And it's a... I might play a little clip of this. Yeah, let's play a little clip yeah. of Take My Hand let's, just to give the audience... Let's talk about it whilst it's playing underneath. We basically have a shot of the ocean. <laughs> and we've got all this smooth West Coast sounds. And then we Sexy. have... Sti- well, they're not even stills. They're basically actors trying to keep as still as they possibly can. Yes. Yeah. And we have the actor's name and what they're playing next to them. And it's very much like the old BBC You Have Been Watching Yes. Thing. Yes. So it if is. you watch a lower low or Dad's Army, it's always like you've been watching off a low, John Le Missouri. <laughs> and it's really like that. And some of it's not even that great in terms of green screen. It's clear no. as some of it's actually been taken from the film itself. Yeah. And you can tell that some of the actors are like, Do I really have to stand in front of this green screen? <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? I mean that makes me think that it is definitely a reshoot. Yeah. The fact that some of it is taken from the actual film whereas others have been captured specifically for this end credit. I think it's almost a studio thing where they've gone, Well we better let know what actor's been playing what part. Yes. Because <laughs> they wouldn't know. It's so confusing yeah. anyway. <laughs> Once they see the cast list and the names that they were playing, yeah. nobody's gonna know who was who. So all to this smooth West Coast rock. And we're going to fade that out now. Fade it out slowly. We're fading out. Yeah, it's funny. With Toto, they won a Grammy for Toto 4, which is their most famous album. It has Rosanna and Africa on it. And they celebrated by playing on half of Michael Jackson's Thriller and doing this film. Yeah. Because they were in between vocalists at the time, so they did mainly instrumental work in this period before they released their next album. And yeah, it's a funny one, but um, actually felt like a natural fit for them when on paper it wouldn't. Yeah, again, I, I must say I was really surprised with the type of score that they delivered. Because what I do like about it is there are elements that you expect of Toto. There are those electronic elements to it, but it still has this grand traditional instrumental score going on as well yeah and it seems to marry the two together quite well and i think the only part where they had to have some music replaced was their june theme which is on the soundtrack which does sound like a very much toto-esque instrumental track that must have been replaced with the prophecy theme which is by brian eno a wise choice in my opinion because Mm. i really like the prophecy theme that brian eno made for the film and it's because it conjures the same type of emotions that I get when I listen to Apollo Atmosphere and Sounds, which is another famous Brian Eno album. And it's kind of suited to Dune. I like that he's taken a soundtrack that he did for the known universe because Apollo Atmosphere and Sounds was actually a soundtrack for the moonwalk. It takes something from 
here from the real world yeah and pulls this fantasy world into it slightly and just looking into it i think the theme must have been created at roughly the same time because apollo came out in 83 and this came out in 84 and they share the same producer daniel lanois yes so, so there's definitely some overlap there yeah. maybe there is um, some leftovers i'm sure it must be a, an outtake or something that they did at the same time so and i think we need to really talk about whether or not david lynch is suited to this world because i know that a lot of criticism that has been laid at the feet of david lynch's dune is that you know what david lynch shouldn't be making these type of movies yeah, and uh, I think David Lynch himself has made himself believe that he's the wrong guy for these kind of films too. And I have to disagree. Yeah. Because there is always an element of fantasy about David Lynch films. Even when we look at films that have come since Dune, the one that strikes me is Wild at Heart. And that plays with the idea of The Wizard of Oz mm. throughout its entire runtime. and It even has its own Wicked Witch of the West in it. And so he does seem to be in tune with these fantasy ideas. And I like that he brings a kind of weirdness to Dune, which it needs because it is a very weird story. It's grand and it's big and it's strange at its heart. And David Lynch, to me, is absolutely suited to that. I think the main problem is that he just got his fingers burnt yes. with it. He lost all control over it and it became something that he ultimately wasn't proud of because it, it didn't reflect his original vision. Interestingly, Jodorowsky himself went to see the 1984 version of Dune and going in, he believed that David Lynch was one of the only directors who could take on this property. And although he thought that the film was a failure, he didn't attribute the failure to David Lynch. He thought that all the things that were bad about the film were the producer's fault. He felt that this was a obvious producer's cut of the film and that this didn't reflect David Lynch's vision. So even someone like Jodorowsky could see that. Who do you think could do a good job of Dune in today's cinematic landscape? You could go down the Christopher Nolan route, but on a more interesting note, you could have Guillermo del Toro. Oh yeah, Guillermo del Toro is definitely the filmmaker that I would love to see tackle this kind of property. Yeah. It definitely has the strange kind of creatures that he excels at doing. Yeah, especially those navigators. They look a little bit del Toro-esque I to would me. love to see his take on that. And yeah. obviously, he would keep it practical because yeah. he is a very practical-minded director. I'm not sure how he would handle the story, though. No, no. He'd probably need some help on the screenwriting front, I think. If I had to think of a director, another director once just popped in my head right now whose mm -hmm. version of Dune I would love to see. Just speaking of directors who work in a very visual sense. But I would love to see George Miller's Dune. Wow, yeah. That is the version of the film that yeah. I think would be absolutely excellent. <laughs> yeah. I think George Miller's anything at the moment would be great if yeah. it's not Happy yeah. Feet. But yeah, definitely. George Miller's June. That's what I'm putting my hat down on. I'm just thinking it's only a matter of time, though, before someone does try and tackle this again. And considering that it was pushed into production as early as 2009 before failing yet again. Yeah. There are still attempts being made to make June into something. So, yeah, we are definitely going to see this again. Gareth? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to adapt June into a screenplay? <laughs> I, think, I think it's far bigger than, uh, than my capabilities. Right? <laughs> Well, I've got the actual book here. I've got the um, the Great June Trilogy. And let's just see... Yeah, you've been using it as a doorstop yeah, throughout this entire just, podcast. Uh, see how many pages this is. This is all the first three June books in one. And it is 910 pages. Ah, it's a nice reading, though. And the June novel 
the original book that the film is based on. It's about 400 pages, It's about isn't 400 it? pages of this book, and there's quite a lot of lines per page. This is quite a large book, so I'm thinking, normal novel, you're looking at about 500 pages for the first novel alone, so it's a very hefty subject matter. It's all about finding the right story in there, and knowing what to take and what to leave. And to be honest, I always think that the best adaptations are ones that don't treat the material as gospel. You've always got to have that leeway of trying to provide audiences with something new. And things that work on paper don't always work on screen. Yeah. I always find it boring when I've read a book and I see a film based on that book. Because I'm the type of person that when I read something before I see an adaptation of that, I want to see something different. I want to see somebody else's take on that material. And the wilder, the better. And one of the best examples of that. Is Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. The film actually visually resembles nothing like in the story. There are elements of it, and the story itself is far removed from Philip K. Dick's novel, and yet they both exist on the same spectrum. They're both great, but they're completely different. And that's what I want to see from Dune. I have one last question, really, mm-hmm. before we move on to the stats and facts section of this podcast. Okay, so Jodorowsky had Mick Jagger in his version of June. <laughs> David Lynch has Sting yep. in this version of June. Playing the same character. Who would be, in a contemporary version of June, who would take that rock and roll star kind of role? Because it's clear that everybody wants to cast a rock and roll star in that role. Kanye West. <laughs> oh, he's, he's, the got only the, one he's got the ego for yeah, it. He's, he's definitely he's the only got one the ego self-important for enough. Yeah, I oh, know. I can see that. I can yeah, he see doesn't that even have to act. He overlaps he, with his character. Yeah, his does, actual character. He doesn't have to act because he's already a massive dick anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what? I can see that. I actually <laughs> like that. As casting goes, that's really stuck in my head. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. I think you're onto something. Okay, so you've heard us ramble on about Spice Melange, Space Barons, and Worm Riders. But now it's time for us to assess why June has been forgotten. And I think first we have to look at the stats and facts. So straight off, let's head over to Rotten Tomatoes and see how the critics dealt with this film when it was first released. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an overall rating of 56%. So it's not far off being fresh, but just misses it. And it's got an average rating of 5.9. So I'm thinking a 6 out of 10 is probably actually fair with this one, actually. Yeah, I would call this a 3 out of 5 film. So 6 out of 10 is... Very fair. Yeah. It's straight in line with my expectations. It's not a bad film. It's not a terrible film. It's a film that's been hindered by other forces. Yes. However, Roger Ebert hated the film and he gave it one out of five. Aye. So this is what he said. June looks like a project that was seriously out of control from the start. Sets were constructed. Actors were hired. No usable screenplay was ever written. Everybody faked it as long as they could. Some shabby special effects were thrown into the pot and the producers crossed their fingers and hoped that everybody who has read the books will want to see the movie. I don't think I actually agree with Ebert's view, but even when I don't agree, he still puts together a great argument. It was put on his worst movies of 84 list as well, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, I think it won. I think it was his worst film of 84. Oh, I imagine it's made one of his Your Movie Sucks books as well. The thing is, the way Ebert sums it up is that Dune was misguided, even in its conception. But I think David Lynch had a vision for this film that would have been brilliant. It was a fairly chaotic production where sets were being built before anything had been finalised. But even despite that, I think what he ended up with was pretty good, considering... Yes. yeah, And it's def- only after definitely. the fact that it's been messed around with. Like you say, it has been messed about with. It is a film that has been sabotaged. 
but actually it's still serviceable. Ian Nathan of Empire was far more forgiven with Dune and awarded it three out of five stars. So he's much more in line with our way of thinking. And he actually said, it's not for everyone. But if you don't mind the brain-bending confusion of the plot and occasional feeling of 80s high camp, this isn't as bad as its detractors would have you think. And yeah, I have to agree with that. It isn't as bad as Roger Ebert makes out. No. I know that he had a hard time with David Lynch at the time and also went on to rate Blue Velvet badly. Mm. I think that was another one out of five stars. So, Oh, really? Wow. Roger Ebert at this time was not David Lynch's biggest fan. No. Okay, so we've heard from the critics on both sides of the fence. But how did David Lynch's Dune land with general audiences? Now it's over to our box office results. And I can tell you, we've already mentioned that Dune had a budget of $40 million, So that's that's the bar. That's the bar that it must reach in order to be a success, at the very least. Unfortunately, Dune only opened to $6 million and actually made $31 million overall. It opened to second place, losing out to Beverly Hills Cop in its second weekend which is uh, no surprise considering that Eddie Murphy vehicle went on to be the top grossing film of the year. So it didn't do badly on first release. It's open to second against a film that went on to be the biggest film of the year. I will say, curiously enough, that it opened against another forgotten film that we are going to be covering at some point in the future. And it's one of John Carpenter's many forgotten films. (laughs) It's uh, Starman. Yeah. That opened to sixth place. Wow. I mean, how was 1984 as a year for film? So that particular year gave us Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, Karate Kid 1 of 3, Police Academy 1 of 7, the Terminator series. 1 of whatever it is, and, <laughs> and the unforgettable classic of cinematic history, Prince's Purple Rain, oh. which still lands as his best film appearance. <laughs> if anyone's ever seen Under the Cherry Moon or... Graffiti Bridge, you'll agree. I would love to see Prince's Chocolate Rain. Yeah. <laughs> what, him team up with Tay Zonday? Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's, that that's a would... film I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> what, in a Jehovah's Witness fantasy <laughs> to fight wizards? Okay. Write it down. Yeah. Write this down. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it recorded, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, considering what Dune was up against at the time, I can actually understand why it's been somewhat forgotten by general audiences, and I don't think it had the clearest of visions in its theatrical form. So although it's a mass, this kind of nerd following that we are all a part of, I can totally see why it didn't amass that Star Wars audience that Dino De Laurentiis was really gunning for. Yeah, and I think he was just kidding himself, because again, he didn't understand the source material. The way you have to handle Dune is the same way you handled Lord of the Rings. Yes. It has yes, to it be is. handled with a lot of respect, a lot of love, and it has to be given that room to breathe. It needs to be handled like the Lord of the Rings and not The Hobbit, which yeah. is given far too much time to breathe. Yeah. Okay, so all that's left for me to really ask, Andy, is Dune one of the best forgotten films or is it best forgotten? I don't think it's one of the best forgotten films, but I don't think it's best forgotten either, mainly for the reason that I think it needs to be there to inspire someone else to make a much better version of this film. I think it's there for cultural value. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is part of film lore. I think it's got a lot of interesting things in it. It doesn't add up at the end. But I think if something good can be made of it, I think it deserves not to be forgotten for that reason. I think June is endlessly interesting as a property. And I think the production history 
of Dune in all of its many forms has been very interesting and it's caused much debate. I can't really say that this film should be one of the best of the forgotten. I very much agree with you in that way. But yeah, it has sparked genuine interest by a certain audience, a niche audience, and it has a master following. But this version of the film, even though I love elements of it, I can't say this is one of the best of the forgotten. I can't put it in that list. No. Because it still fails by its own judgment. It still fails by its own standards. And with that kind of production team and that kind of cast, it should be far bigger than what it is. However, we did this last week, and I'm going to do it this week as well. I'm going to add an asterisk to this judgment and say there are plenty of other versions of Dune out there, some of which are much closer to what David Lynch envisioned, and I haven't seen any of those versions yet. And perhaps one of those may make it into the list as one of the best forgotten films. And maybe we'll be able to update you once we've seen that version. Yeah, so keep an eye on Twitter and Facebook, because maybe this isn't the last you've heard of us and Dune. So I'm going to have to say, at this current time, though, it's best forgotten, but with an asterisk. There is yeah. hope for June. Okay, and that's all we have time for in today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, and get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Join us next week when Andy and I will be watching Bruce Willis play a washed-up, depressed, and jaded individual, and then we're watching Death Becomes Her. So it's bye from me. Bye from me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.